You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you. And so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living an hour where we spend uh, listening to the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. And it is these uh, reflections that continue to challenge us in our faith. And, you know, I think of the millions that used to tune in to Bishop Sheen each week, uh, either on radio or television, and uh, how the conversions just continued to happen and happen and happen because he made us think about the issues today. And people ask me all the time, will there ever be another Bishop Sheen? And the answer is no. (laughs) When our Lord made Bishop Sheen, he made only one. Uh, And there'll be others that will uh, capture uh, audiences. I think of uh, Bishop Robert Barron and how he has a good following. And I think one of the uh, reasons why uh, Bishop Barron receives so much attention is he speaks to the issues of the day. And uh, people are always saying, what's your opinion on that father? And this is what Bishop Sheen did so well. He spoke about the issues of the day and uh, gave us uh, ideas and uh, answers to those questions that we struggled with and um, that we still struggle with today. They struggled with them back in the 40s and the 50s, and we struggle with them here in the year 2017. And so I thought I would share with you today uh, one of the reflections he gave back from the Catholic Hour, and it was uh, entitled The Theology of Conversion. And we all need to hear about conversions, and we've all had our own personal conversions. And so he's going to address us about that topic. But I thought we'd start a program, as we always do, with prayer. And I always enjoy praying for favors. You know, we have our go-to saints. I love to pray to St. Joseph. He is my favorite saint of all saints. And uh, But Bishop Sheen, uh, you know, I want to say he comes a close second uh, these days. Of course, uh, he has changed uh, so many lives. I know he's helped me a great deal. And so we're going to pray for a special favor through the intercession of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. So please join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Eternal Father, you alone grant us every blessing in heaven and on earth through the redemptive mission of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit. If it be according to your will, 
glorify your servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, by granting the favor I now request through his prayerful intercession. And let us just take a moment to offer up our intentions this time. And we make this prayer confidently through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Now sit back and enjoy this reflection entitled, The Theology of Conversion. Friends, the time has come to treat the all-important subject of the cause of conversion. We start with this simple fact. You cannot do it by yourself, nor can any human being on the face of God's earth do it for you. No flat tire can fix itself, and no frustrated, unhappy person can make himself spiritually happy. Something more is needed to cure a man than his own libido or instinct. Water can never rise above its own level, and no amount of drainage from the unconscious to the conscious mind can make the stream of thought clearer cleaner or stronger. If you rely on yourself to remake yourself, you will have the feeling that it is all auto-suggestion or self-hypnotism, or that you are talking to yourself. If you rely on someone else to deny the soul, you will feel that the contact is like that of two billiard balls which repel one another when hit. If a man were physically sick, he would not try to cure himself simply by medicines developed within his own body. And in like manner, when a soul is spiritually sick, I speak not of the mentally sick, it cannot completely heal itself by its own efforts and without the need of an energy and power from above. It is because many individuals today are so painfully conscious of their own powerlessness that they yearn for a kind of compulsiveness which will dispense them from responsibility. That is why they throw themselves into communism, to escape self by the destruction of self in the mass. The tragedy of life is that so many frustrated souls try to heal themselves without the aid of the divine physician. What they miss is the possibility of becoming something more than they are. It must be remembered that it is possible for a human being to live on three levels. The first level is the subhuman, or the animal, in which a man is content to live only for his body, his flesh, and pleasure. If reason is used on this level, it is only to discover new techniques for thrills and amusement. Man can also live on a second level, which is the rational, in which he will lead a good pagan life, defend a natural kind of justice, but without great enthusiasm, be tolerant, philanthropic, favor the underdog, 
contribute to community enterprises, but refusing all the while to believe that there is a knowledge above his own intellect and a strength above his own will. Beyond these two levels, there is a third, which is the divine level, in which a man, thanks to God, is elevated to the supernatural order and made a child of the Heavenly Father. These three levels may be compared to a house. The basement represents the animal or unconscious level. The first floor, which has some comfort, stands for reason. And the second floor, which is orderly, luxurious, and peaceful, stands for grace. To suggest to a person who lives in the cellar of animal pleasures and carnal lust that there is a nicer floor above is to bring down upon one's head the charge of restraining freedom and the biological urges of life. And to suggest to those who live on the plane of reason that there is above that floor another one of faith and grace is to invite a ridicule of religion. Those on the first floor have no understanding whatever of the supernatural. They regard it as a kind of pious extra, like frost on a window pane. They are willing to admit that there is evolution in the universe, that progress has been upward and vertical from the chemical to man, but when it comes to the development of man, they refuse even to admit the dignity of man and degrade him by making him an animal. Those who refuse to admit grace above nature are very much like two tadpoles who were one day discussing the possibility of there being something beyond tadpoles. And one little tadpole said to the other little tadpole, you know, I think I'm going to stick my head above this water and see what's up there. And the other tadpole says, don't be silly. You don't mean to say there's anything in this world besides water, do you? Now, a reasonable being should ask himself, if chemicals can enter into plants, plants be taken up into animals, and animals assimilated into man, why cannot man himself, who is the peak of visible creation, be assumed to a higher power? The rose has no right to say there is no life above it, and neither has man, who has an infinite capacity for life and truth and love, the right to say there is no life above him. There is a higher life, and this we call the supernatural life, or grace, because it is freely given. The supernatural is not the result of the development of the natural, as the oak is the development of an acorn. A good man in the natural order does not become Christian by himself. Stones do not become elephants. Man by nature is only a creature of God, as a stone or a star are creatures of God. The supernatural privilege of being a child of God, so that one may call him father, is something which no more belongs to man by nature than life belongs to a crystal. If this microphone here, through which I am speaking, suddenly began to bloom, that would be a supernatural act for the microphone, because it belongs neither to the nature, the capacities, 
and the flowers, the powers of a microphone to bloom. And if a flower suddenly began to move from place to place and to touch and taste and feel, that would be a supernatural act for a flower. For it does not belong to the nature and powers and capacities of a flower to have five senses. And if an animal such as a dog suddenly begins to quote Shakespeare and then recite some lines from Sophocles, that would be a supernatural act for a dog. For it does not belong to the nature and powers and capacities of a dog to reason. Now if man, who is a creature of God, just as a table is a creature of a carpenter, begins to throb with the very life of God, so that he can call God not only his creator but his father, that would be a supernatural act for a man. Man would then be something which he is not, thanks to the gift of God. That gift which makes man a partaker of God's nature is called grace. The church, which is Christ's mystical body, invites every man to become something he is not. He has made one thing. He is invited to be begotten another. There is a world of difference between making and begetting. We make what is unlike us. For example, a man makes a wagon. We beget what is like us. For example, a mother begets a child. Inasmuch as we were made by God, we are unlike him. Inasmuch as we are begotten by God, we become like him, partakers of his nature, his children, and the heirs of the kingdom of God. Now this brings us to the important problem of how man becomes more than he is, or how a man is converted. The answer is, man is lifted to the supernatural state and converted from a creature to a partaker of God's nature through the grace of God with which man freely cooperates. There is operating throughout nature a law that no lower order is ever lifted to a higher order without first the higher order coming down to the lower and secondly, without a sacrificial change on the part of the lower nature. Before the phosphates, the carbon, the sunlight, and moisture can enter into plant life, the plant must come down to them, take them up into itself, and in their turn, they must surrender the form of existence they had before they can be elevated. Sunlight in the air is not the same as sunlight in a plant. It loses something in order to gain something. In like manner, before the plant can live in the sentient life of the animal, the animal must come down to the plant, the plant must be plucked up from its roots, and before chemicals and plants and animals can live in a thinking, loving human nature, man must come down to them, and they must surrender their lower manner of existence. If the plants and animals could speak, they would say to the rain and sunlight and carbon, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. And in like manner, man who can speak, 
can say to everything that is beneath him, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in me. But once they have finally been assimilated into man, they fall under a new government, their life is enriched, their nature is elevated, and this becomes their reward for surrender and immolation. That gives the answer to how man begins to live the higher life in God. First of all, God must come down to man. This is the meaning of what happened in Bethlehem and Golgotha. Secondly, man must surrender his lower nature. But here there is a difference between man and all other creatures. Man is a person which sunshine, grass, and cows are not. Their lower natures are destroyed by surrendering themselves to man's body. But inasmuch as man is a person, he is indestructible. What man surrenders, therefore, is only a part of himself which is sinful and ungodlike. And this is done by an act of mortification or a spiritual death. But the personality survives. And such is the meaning of our Lord's words, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live in my kingdom. This death to a lower nature, this birth to divine life, is effected through the sacrament of baptism. As you could not live a physical life unless you were born of your parents, so you cannot live a supernatural life unless you were born of waters of the Holy Spirit. Without that gift of God, which is freely given, man has a physical life, but he has no spiritual life. His body is alive, thanks to his soul, but his soul is dead because of the absence of the life of God. It may be asked if grace makes us the children of God and illumines us to see true values, why is it? that some do not accept grace? The answer is because man is free. Though we cannot initiate our own salvation, for the first movement comes from God, we can prevent it by refusing to cooperate. God's grace and our freedom are related like the two wings of a bird. Any gift can be rejected. God's love is never imposed under the penalty of destroying love itself. The rich man in the gospel went away sad because he had great possessions. And St. Augustine in his life at one time said, Dear Lord, I want to be good. But not now, a little later on. What then is the cause of conversion? Conversion is due to the emergence of divine power, the inner penetration of spirit and spirit, the influence of the changeless upon the fluid character of man. And in that consciousness and awareness of presence of divine grace, the individual turns his personality, every scrap of it, over not to his higher self, but to God. And those who have responded to that gift of grace 
begin to feel the presence of God in a new way. Religion ceases to be pietistic or a loving remembrance of our Lord, a kind of sentimental companionship with him through hymns and sermons in which one becomes a fellow traveler of someone who lived 1,900 years ago. Though there is considerable emotional fulfillment in this pietistic plane, it is still not Christianity. And it does not become so until one enters the third stage, which is the spiritual, where Christ actually dwells in our hearts, where there is an awareness rooted in love, where the soul feels the tremendous impact of God on itself and Holy Communion, where there is unity of faith under one head, in one body, and vivified by one spirit. Let no one ever tell you that any priest ever makes a convert. He does not. Not any more than he makes the sunrise. The person who is instructed for the faith is like the soil of the field. The priest who teaches him is like the farmer who tills the soil. But it is God who drops the seed. All the plowing, harrowing, cultivating of the field without goodwill on the part of the person, without faith as a gift, would be profitless and vain. God's grace is never wanting to a soul, but our own goodwill sometimes fails. If you have not the supernatural gift of faith and grace, your personality is undeveloped. You can be fed until you were fed up. You can surround yourself with every material pleasure to satisfy your every passion. You can be given license to do whatever you please. You can be castled, satiated, cuddled, amused. But time and time again you will be seeking that that you have not, grasping for something already out of your reach and feeling for the unworldly in the heart of the world. You know very well that you have not the resources within yourself to perfect and complete yourself. You have looked within yourself and found misery. You have looked all around you. You found a war-weary and a war-fearful world. Do not be discouraged. There's someplace else to look. Begin looking above to the God of grace. Spend an hour a day in prayer and meditation. And when you pray, ask God to enlighten your intellect, to strengthen your will, he is already knocking at the door of your soul. Refuse not to open it, and you will find peace. I cannot tell you what this peace of soul is, any more than I can tell a blind man what color is. But I pray that each of you may have it. 
My only purpose in broadcasting is to make you love God. That is all. You send me a thousand letters a day to confirm this interest. And we are encouraged beyond measure. I wish that with my extremely limited facilities, I could answer that many a day. That our good Lord should make use of such a poor instrument as myself to communicate to you the knowledge of his truth is a proof not only that he is indeed humble of heart, but that today, as on the first Palm Sunday, he can come into the Jerusalem of your heart riding on an ass. But believe me, to each honest, God-seeking soul, my time, my interest, my efforts will be bent to your service. In that desire to love God more, we are friends. So, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection from 1948, the Catholic hour, when Monsignor Sheen gave an address entitled The Theology of Conversion. We need to pray for conversion. I think we all have a family member or a friend who is in desperate need of conversion. And so let us pray for the grace of that conversion. Uh, each one of the saints had their moments of where they turned their hearts to God fully. And so may we, too, turn our hearts to God. And I think of conversions and how Archbishop Sheen, uh, to his record, has hundreds of thousands of souls, just as Mother Teresa has many thousand souls. Uh, he did touch hearts, and he brought about, through the grace of God, conversions. And he did that by giving his catechism lessons. And so... I'm going to start off the first of his 50-part series of his catechism, and we're going to go through Lesson 1 together today. And I want to thank our good friends at FultonSheen.com for providing the recordings uh, that we're going to use for this series. And I'd encourage you to visit their website at www.FultonSheen.com, and there you could purchase the full series of his catechism, along with hundreds of others' reflections. So anyway, so let us now sit back and relax and enjoy a catechism lesson from, uh, at that time, Bishop Fulton J. Sheen. Peace be to you. This is Bishop Fulton J. Sheen talking. And this will be the beginning of over 24 hours of talking. Women are accused of doing all the talking. This is to prove that men do their share. I remember some years coming back from Europe, and a steward came out on the deck of the ship, and he said, Are you the Bishop Sheen who gave the mission sermon at St. Patrick's Cathedral two years ago? Yes. He said, That was a wonderful sermon. 
I enjoyed every minute of that hour and a half. I said, my good man, I never talked an hour and a half in my life. Well, he said, it seemed that long to me. Now, this will well be over that hour and a half. And we have had alternatives in making these discs. One alternative would be to write out everything that I was going to say to you and then read it to you. The other alternative would be to study, to meditate, and then to talk out of the fullness of my heart without notes. That is the way that I have chosen to do. Now, this second method has many imperfections about it. There will be faults, there will be mistakes. I will miss a word here and there. And I am absolutely sure that there will come a moment in your life and in listening to these records that you had wished that I had read it. You will be somewhat in the position that God must have been in when he made Adam. He looked at Adam and then said, I could do better than that. And then he made Eve. But we've chosen this method of the open discourse in order that we might commune and have an encounter one with another. And the subject, in general, will be the philosophy of life. Now, where begin? Well, there are two ways of waking up in the morning. One is to say, good morning, God. And the other is to say, good God, morning. We are going to start with a second. We will start a long way back. And people who wake up that way have an anxiety about life. I suppose their life might be characterized in two ways. First of all, to them it seems rather absurd. And considerable literature is being produced today on the absurdity of life. I suppose one of the best expressions of that absurdity was a novel about a city on the other side of the river. And in this particular novel, there were two factories. One factory was on one side of the river and the other factory on the other side. And the factory on one side of the river took great big stones and smashed and grounded them to powder. Then, when the stones were reduced to powder, they shipped the powder to the other side of the river where there was another factory 
that turned them into great big boulders. Then the boulders were sent back to the first factory, and so the routine continued. This was to be a literary expression of the way people today regard life. One finds this absurdity often, too expressed in the writings of an existentialist who pictured three people in hell. Each one wanted to talk about himself, his own aches, his own pains, and the others were not interested. They were concerned only with their own aches and pains. And finally, when the curtain goes down, the last line of the play is, my neighbor is hell. Now, this is the way some people live. And along with this sense of absurdity, there is also a drift. Many minds are like old man river. They just keep floating along. No goal. Just a kind of a, an arrow without a target. Pilgrims without a shrine. Journeys at sea. Without any kind of a port. Now, what is the common conclusion of people who wake up and say this? Good God morning. I think the common characteristic of them all is life has no meaning. It is without purpose, without goal, without destiny. I remember when I first went to Europe to study as a young priest. I was following courses during the summer at the Sorbonne in Paris principally in order to learn French. And I dwelt in a boarding house that belonged to a certain woman whom we will call Madame Citron. I was there about a week. And she came to me and said something, but it was all French to me. You get so angry in Paris because the dogs and the horses understand French, and you don't. Well, there were three women school teachers that were living in the boarding house from Boston, and I asked them to act as an interpreter, and this was the story that came out. She said that after her marriage, her husband had left her. A daughter that was born to them became a moral wreck in the streets of Paris. And then she pulled out of her pocket a small vial of poison. She said, I do not believe in God. Sometimes the thought comes to me that there is a God, and then in case there be one, I curse him. So I've decided simply because life has no meaning and is absurd to do away with it. I intend to take this tonight. Can you do anything for me? 
Well, through the interpreter, I said, I can't if you're going to take that stuff. So I asked her to postpone her suicide for nine days. I think it's the only case on record of a woman postponing a suicide for nine days. Well, I never prayed before in my life as I prayed for that woman. And on the ninth day, the good Lord gave her great grace. Some years later, on the way to Lourdes, I stopped off at the city of Docks, where I enjoyed the hospitality of Monsieur, Madame, and Mademoiselle Citron. And I said to the village curé, are the Citrons good Catholics? Oh, he said, it's wonderful when people keep the faith all during their lives. He did not know the story. So it's possible to find one's way out of this absurdity. But now let's come to a question which interests all psychiatrists and interests all of us. What is the difference between a normal and an abnormal person? The difference is this. A normal person always works toward a goal or a purpose. The abnormal person looks for escape mechanisms, excuses, rationalizations in order to avoid discovering the meaning and purpose of life. That is the difference. The normal person sets for himself a target. For example, in this life, a young man might want to be a doctor or a lawyer. But beyond that, there's something else. Suppose you ask, what do you want to do after you become a doctor? Well, I want to marry. And then, raise children. And then, be happy. And then, make money. Give money to my children. And then... There comes the last, and then. The normal person knows what that and then is. The abnormal person, however, is locked up within the barrel of his own ego. He's like an egg. He's never been hatched. He refuses to submit himself to a certain amount of divine incubation in order to arrive at a different life than he has. Now, what are some of the escapes of the abnormal person? Because that's the way he spends his time. If he wants to go, for example, from New York to Washington, He isn't concerned about Washington. He's concerned about giving excuses why he doesn't go to Washington. Now, just to mention a few of these escape mechanisms of the abnormal person. One, love of speed. I believe that an excessive love of speed, or should I say, a love of excessive speed is due to a want 
of a goal or purpose in life. So they do not know where they're going, but they certainly are on their way. And there may even be an unconscious or half-conscious desire to end life because it is without purpose. Another escape would be uh, sex, throwing oneself into business in an abnormal kind of way in order to have the intensity of an experience atone for a want of goal or purpose. One of the very famous psychiatrists, Dr. Young, said that after 25 years of experience of dealing with mental patients, I would say that at least one-third of my patients had no observable clinical neurosis. But all of them were suffering from a want of the meaning and purpose of life. And not until they discover that will they ever be happy. In other words, the vast majority of people today are suffering from what might be called an existential neurosis. The anxiety and the problem of living. The answering of the question, what is it all about? Where do I go from here? Now, how find it? I know what you're thinking. Now you're thinking, now he's going to tell us to get down on our knees and pray to God. No, I'm not. I may say that a little later on, but I'm not going to tell you that now. And why? Because people who have an existential neurosis are too far away from that for the moment. I'm offering two solutions. First, Go out and help your neighbor. Those who suffer from an anxiety of life do so because they live only for themselves. Their mind, their heart, each has been damned up. And all of the scum of the river of life makes of the heart and mind kind of a garbage. And the easiest way out of this is to love people whom you see. If we do not love those whom we see, how can we love God whom we do not see? Visit the sick. Be kind to the poor. 
help the healing of lepers. Find your neighbor. And the neighbor is someone in need. Once you do this, you begin to break out of the shell. You discover that your neighbor is not hell, as Sartre said. That your neighbor is part of yourself. And as a creature of God. Not very long ago, there was a father brought to me his young son. A very self-wise, conceited, young delinquent who had given up his faith and was bitter with himself and everyone whom he met. The next day, the boy ran away from home. He was away from home for a year. The boy came back as bad as ever. And the father brought him to me and said, what shall I do with him? I said, send him to school. But not in the United States. So I recommended another school. I do not write and ask you what that school was. I recommended a certain school to him. And about a year later, the boy came back to see me. He said, would you be willing to give me moral support for an enterprise that I have undertaken in Mexico? He said, there's a group of boys in the college where I am who have built a little school. And we have gone all around the neighborhood and brought in the children to teach them catechism. We have also brought in a doctor from the United States once a year and for one month to take care of all of the sick people of the neighborhood. And I said, how did you become interested in this? Well, he said, the boys went down there during the summer, and I thought I would go down too. And he recovered his faith and his morals and everything else in his neighbor. It is the poor, the indigent, the needy, the sick, fellow creatures of God. Give to us great strength. Some years ago, there was a, an Indian who went into Tibet. He went in to do a little evangelizing of that non-Christian country. And he took with him a Tibetan guide. In the course of the trip, they got very cold crossing the foothills of the Himalayas. They sat down, exhausted, almost frozen. And this Indian, whose name was Singh, said, I think I hear a man moaning down there in the abyss. And the Tibetan said, well, 
He said, you're almost dead yourself. You can't help him. And Singh said, yes, I will help him. So he went down, dragged the man out from the abyss the best he could and carried him to the nearby village and came back completely revived. Revived by that act of charity. And when he came back, he found his friend who refused to aid the neighbor frozen to death. So the first way to escape the anxiety of life is to find your neighbor. The second way is to leave yourself open to experiences and encounters with the divine which will come to you from without. I say leave yourself open. Your eye does not have light. Your ear has no sound or harmony. Food of your stomach comes from without. Your mind has been taught. Your radio pulls in unseen waves from the outside. Therefore, allow this hole in your head, this hole in your heart. Receive certain impulses that come from without that will perfect you. No matter how far away you be from what I'm talking about, they will still come. I remember once inviting a woman to see me who had just lost her 18-year-old daughter. She was very rebellious, had no faith whatever. And she said, I want to talk about God. I said, all right, I will talk about him for five minutes, and then you talk about him or against him for 45, and then we will have a discussion. Well, I was talking about two minutes, and she interrupted me. She stuck her finger under my nose and she said, listen, if God is good, why did he take my daughter? I said, in order that you might be here, learning something about the purpose and meaning of life. And that is what she learned. She found it. She discovered it. So I am suggesting that you will not just reason yourself into the meaning and purpose of life. You will act yourself into the meaning and purpose of life by breaking the shell of egotism and selfishness, by cleaning the windows of the moral life and allowing the sunshine You would not be seeking God if you had not already in some way found him. You are a king in exile. You have a kingdom. I will tell you more about it later on.
You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada. Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you again for joining me for this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living. We just uh, experienced that first lesson of his 50-part catechism series uh, about the philosophy of life. And uh, I love how he began that series, and he asked that question. When you wake up in the morning, do you say, Good morning, God? Or do you say, Good God morning? And uh, what is our philosophy of life? And so we're going to be sharing the whole 50-part series uh, with you over the next 50 weeks here on Radio Maria Canada. And we hope you will continue to join us each week. And we will, of course, share other reflections from his television series and his retreats and other uh, reflections he gave over a 50-year period. And so uh, we're happy to share these recordings with you. And again, let us continue to pray for our apostolate here at Radio Maria. We need your prayerful and financial support. And so we always would ask you to pray about that and to give as generously as you can of your time, talent, and treasure. And we would ask you to share our apostolate on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those different forms of technology, uh, sharing these recordings with them. And so uh, we will let you uh, spread some more seed, some good seed, that will take uh, root, hopefully, in fertile ground. And uh, let us also, too, uh, continue to uh, pray for uh, all the victims of violence across the world. Uh, We just watch television and read the newspapers, and we know uh, that they're killing Christians all over the world. And we are so lucky and blessed to be able to share our faith still. And uh, especially in this country, Canada and the United States, uh, we're free to worship without fear as the scriptures say. And so let us pray again that the Lord will protect all of us. And again, the martyrs that are being created today, the blood of the martyrs, may it uh, continue to sow seeds of faith for future generations. And so everyone, thank you again for listening. Again, we ask you to join us next week as we continue the catechism series and other reflections from the venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. So we'll end our program in prayer. We'll continue to pray for the canonization of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen, along with our many intentions. So please join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, source of all holiness, you raise up within the church in every age men and women who serve with heroic love and dedication. You have blessed your church through the life and ministry of your faithful servant, Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. He has written and spoken well of your divine Son, Jesus Christ, and was a true instrument of the Holy Spirit in touching the hearts of countless people. If it be according to your will, for the honor and glory of the Most Holy Trinity, and for the salvation of souls, we ask you to move the Church to proclaim him a saint. And we ask this prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. We'll see you again next week, and until that time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace.
You have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.